Well, good morning, friends. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the passage that Justin has just read for us from Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 16, for that's where we're going to spend the next few minutes of our time together this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I want to offer you a copy of the Bible that should be within arm's reach, and you'll find the passage we're going to look at this morning on page 870 of the little hardback Bibles that are on the back of the pews or in the back of the seats in front of you. We'd love for that to be your Bible. Take it with you. And, um, and give us the chance to, to follow up with you, if you will, about what we consider together this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, you should know that we are now about uh, midway through a series in the book of Acts. Uh, it is an incredible book. It's a book with a little bit of everything for pretty much everybody. It's a book of uh, surprising and unique stories with details that cover pretty much the, the range of our reading or viewing interests. In Acts, you'll find lots of adventure stories. You'll find a band of brothers soldiering on against life-threatening odds. You'll find prison breaks and a shipwreck scene, and in some cases, some pretty fairly, fairly graphic violence. In Acts, you'll find courtroom drama, if that's what you're looking for. You'll see Paul standing toe-to-toe with some of the most powerful figures in the Roman world. You'll find character studies showing remarkable transformations in men like Peter and Paul, who start in one place and over the course of the story evolve in dramatic and unexpected ways. And for the fantasy lovers out there running through the whole story from beginning to end, there is a, a sizzling supernatural element that you just can't deny where superhuman forces are always intervening in the world of men in all sorts of dramatic and unexpected ways. It's an amazing book full of amazing stories that in some ways are wonderfully unique. But for all its diversity, if you pay really close attention to Acts, as we've been trying to do week after week after week, gathering together each Sunday, one thing you also can't shake about this book is an almost inevitable redundancy to it. That through all these unique stories and their twists and turns, the, the theme of the book is just relentlessly repetitive. And that's no accident. At the core of this book, at the core of its purpose, the, the, the strategy that, that drove Luke to write it in the way that he did is his desire to convince readers like us that God is at work that ultimately the most important thing you need to know about what's going on in the history of the church is the God who is behind it and what he intends to do through it. In story after story, as unique as the cast of human characters may be, Luke comes back again and again and again to what God is doing. And in story after story, as unique as each plot may be, the driving theme behind it is this word of hope about Jesus is spreading. It's spreading like kudzu. You can't kill it. You can't stop it. It works in all sorts of conditions. It works through all sorts of people. It's, it's one instrument after another. But the same general story, the word spread and spread and spread. And in a, in a way, guys, what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're, we're in a way going to see the same thing we've been seeing every single week. Because in this collection of, of short stories that Justin's just read, we're going to see a lot of variety. We're going to see a lot of different characters and some very different plots, story by story. But we're also going to see the whole thing woven together to make the same point we've been tracking with all along. It's one reason I've called this sermon, Here We Go Again. 
It's partly about the fact that that Paul and Barnabas are about to leave on their second missionary journey. They've come home after their first journey. They've been, they've been rehabbing in their home church of Antioch, but now they're, they're out again. They're about ready to leave for, for some of the same places and, and even some new ones. So in a way, here we go again, but in an even deeper way, we're going to see the same thing going on in this journey that we saw go on in the last one. And friends, we need to hear it again. Because this book was given to us so that we would know when we take up the mission God has given to us, just as he gave to Paul and Barnabas, we take it up with his power behind us, with his agenda before us, and with an absolute rock-like confidence that God will do everything he's promised to do, even when we're what he has to work with. We can't fail. We may as well go for it. That's what these stories are meant to tell us. I want to tell them to you one at a time, like a, like a stone skipping across the surface. We'll, we'll touch down quickly on each of these episodes that Luke puts in front of us, but always on the same line, showing God at work, spreading his word in all sorts of conditions to all sorts of people. I want to quickly show you five things about what we see God doing here. Five ways God is working in the stories that we've seen read for us and, and that now we'll dig into. And here's the first one. The first story that, we are, that we're told, the first way we see God working, comes beginning in verse 36 of chapter 15. We see that God works through heartbreaking disagreement. That's point one. God works through heartbreaking disagreement. Verse 36 picks up with Paul and Barnabas in their home church, as I've said. They're soaking up the life of that church, surely. The teaching and preaching uh, that, that the church enjoys and, and that now they're offering. Surely they're enjoying the unity they've got after this big meeting they just had in Jerusalem where they all got together and nailed down exactly what it takes to be with Jesus and what that means for the life of each church, no matter where it is on the globe. Surely they're basking some in that glow. But these men know their responsibility. And their work is not over. Their work is just beginning. And Luke tells us, after some days, verse 36, they get restless. They're itching to go. So Paul says to Barnabas, how about let's return? Let's visit, uh, let's visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God. Let's, let's see how they're doing. So far, so good. Barnabas is on board. Then they hit a snag. See, Barnabas wants to bring along John, who's also called Mark. This is a man we've seen before in the stories that Acts is telling us. A man who had begun with them, actually, on their first missionary journey. He had made the first few stops of that journey. But Luke told us earlier, with very little detail, for some reason, this guy, John Mark, as he's often called, decided to bail. He decided to return to Jerusalem after their first stop on the island of Cyprus. We don't know why. We just know he abandoned them. And Barnabas, he wants to give them a second chance. That's very much on brand for Barnabas. He's known as a son of encouragement. He's, he's known as one who's, who's just always pumping people up, who, who believes in them. He sees the best in them. He's the guy who, when no one wanted anything to do with Paul, took him and brought him in and introduced him around and made sure he had some legs to stand on in this new community. That's Barnabas's M.O., He's for people. He's charitable and gracious. But Paul sees things differently, Luke tells us. Paul isn't willing to take this man along, not after he deserted him last time. And, and before we blame Paul for that, before we actually side with, with, with Barnabas and, and, and see him as the good guy and Paul as this, as this stickler who can't get past old wrongs, I, I think Paul has got good, good reasons for his hesitations. We need to see them. 
It wouldn't be fair to him to assume he shouldn't have, have, have thrown up the roadblocks that he threw up. I mean, think about it. Luke is telling us he thought it best not to take him. Another translation that, that's common is he didn't think it was wise. This is Paul actually trying his best to set this trip up for success and to set John Mark up for success. He doesn't want to put him in a position that he can't handle. So, I mean, just think about this. John Mark left them after their time in Cyprus. If you were here for the sermon in which we covered that story, you'll know Cyprus was the high point of the whole trip. It was basically a triumph. Their time on that island ended with the Roman proconsul who was ruling over the whole island coming to faith in Christ, while the magician who had held him under his spell ran for the hills. That was a triumph. It was the height of the trip. You'll, you'll know that after that, things got, got worse in a hurry. That by the time they reached the, man, the mainland, some people were responding to this message and, and loving what they were hearing, but a lot of people were not. So John Mark got out of Dodge before anyone ever hatched a, pl a plot to stone these men. He got out of Dodge before at Lystra they actually were stoned and left for dead. And if, if John Mark couldn't handle it when they were on Cyprus seeing Roman officials converted, what's he going to do when they go back to these churches in cities that had left them for dead? When, when Lystra is going to be one of the first stops and they're wanted men. You know, Paul doesn't want to put him in that position. It wouldn't be good for John Mark. It wouldn't be good for the trip. It could slow everybody else down or just force them to turn back for his sake. I mean, can you see, friends, these are high stakes. This isn't just one guy who's more of a pushover and one guy who's more of a stickler running into one another. On the line here are the is, is the future usefulness of, of what Barnabas sees as a crucial asset, somebody we ought to develop, someone who needs to, to, to get back in the game on one side, or the success of a mission that was their life's calling on the, on the other side. And, and because these stakes are so high, it just shouldn't surprise us. To hear, as Luke puts it, that a sharp disagreement arose between them and they separated from each other. This is the end of a partnership that has, lo that has lasted for up to or maybe even more than a decade at this point. The end of a partnership between two men who were inseparable. And I think that the first thing that we ought to experience as we read this story is grief over the heartbreak that must have happened or must have, must have occurred, must have come to these men as they make this tough decision to part ways. Think about it. Think, think about all that these brothers have been through already together. It was Barnabas, as I said, who first vouched for Paul after his conversion when everybody else just knew him as a persecutor of the church. It was Barnabas who was his advocate and friend, his encourager, the man who helped him find his place among the Christian leaders. Just think of what they've, what they've just been through on their first missionary journey. Think of the highs and lows they rode up and down on together. That conversion of the Roman proconsul early on. The crowd at Lystra who'd worshipped them then turned against them. What looks must have passed between these men in the midst of that angry mob that came for their lives as the, as the stones literally rain down on them, as they take one and then another, as they look like their lives was about to pass out of their eyes. What, what looks did they exchange? What kinship, what brotherhood in a moment like that? These men have been to war together. And now, verse 39 says, 
Barnabas takes Mark and sails away to Cyprus. How empty must that ship have felt for Barnabas without Paul by his side? Paul chooses Silas and heads up the mainland north through, through Syria and up into, towards Asia. How heavy must his feet have been walking that path apart from Barnabas by his side? This disagreement between them should break our hearts. It surely would have broken theirs. And we should do, friends, here's the thing. We should do everything we can to avoid divisions like this one. I mean, much of the New Testament over and over and over encourages us to unity against disagreement like this. There is no better example of that than what Paul himself says in a letter he would later write to Christians in Philippi saying, complete my joy, there's one thing that's missing. The one thing that's missing to complete my joy is for you guys to have the same mind, to be about the same mission, to have the same love, to be in full accord and of one mind. That's Philippians chapter 2. Paul wrote that after this experience. You really think this experience didn't factor into what he said in that letter? He's been there when, when, when it's impossible to be of one mind. He knows the costs. He knows the pain. That's why we're commanded to do everything we can to be of one mind no matter what. To do the harder work of coming together when we can. And friends, it's one of the most important ways you can pray for our church. You can pray that, that especially in the leadership of our church, that the Lord would protect our unity among our elders and our staff. It isn't a given that we'd stay unified. I mean, our leadership is made up of, of passionate people who love one another deeply. Praise the Lord for that and the unity we've always had. But passionate people who still have indwelling sin, who still won't always see things the same way, well, sometimes that passion, that same passion for the church and its health can drive a wedge between people. And if we don't lose time and energy and momentum and sleep over conflict in our church, it won't be because we're above it where they weren't. It'll be because the grace of the Lord Jesus was given to us to protect us from ourselves. You can pray that that's exactly what God will give us so that we don't have to confront what they did. But all that said, all that said, I think the reason Luke tells us this story is so that we will see that God can work even through our heartbreaking disagreements. Do you notice that one missionary journey has now become two? Overnight, twice the ground will get covered. Barnabas sails off to Cyprus. That would have had to have been both of their first stop. But instead, Paul walks up towards Syria and, and, and up towards Asia. There's no question Luke isn't calling us to disagree with each other as some sort of strategy for exponential growth. The whole Bible points the other direction. It's better to be unified. But what a comfort it is. What a grace to us to know that on this side of heaven, when humans like us can't always agree, humans with big ideas and limited perspectives that won't always be on the same page, the Lord can use us still. And he can even turn heartbreaking disagreement into rejoicing for those who hear and believe. God works through heartbreaking disagreement. 
Here's point two. God works through radical sacrifice as well. God works through radical sacrifice. Here's another short story for you. Starts in verse 1 of chapter 16. Now we follow Paul. Barnabas actually fades off the scene. We don't see him again in this story. We're following with Paul now. And he gets back to Derby and to Lystra. Two places they had visited on their first journey where many had come to faith in Christ. Including now we're told a young disciple by the name of Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but whose father was a Greek. Paul arrives to do some follow-up. He's going to deepen the discipleship that's going on. He's going to invest in the life of this church that he's planted while he's there. And now he finds this man, Timothy, who was going to go on to be basically his right-hand man in his church planting work around the, around the world. He's going to be the man that's on the receiving end of some of Paul's most important letters about the church and how it ought to function. But for now, this guy is just a new believer. He's still getting his own legs under him as a Christian. He's well spoken of by the Christian community, Luke tells us. He's someone they look to as a man of lots of potential. And so Paul thinks, well, if he's thriving here, if his ministry here is going well, I, I'm taking him with me. Luke tells us he wants, Paul wants to bring him along. That's where, that's where they hit another snag. See, apparently in these small towns where Timothy lived and the places where Paul wanted to go and work, um, everybody knows everybody. There's a lot of Jews that lived in these small towns. And those Jews, according to Luke, would have known that Timothy's father was Greek. That means Timothy wasn't circumcised. That was going to be an issue for them. Paul knew this would be a barrier, especially for these new and immature Jewish Christians. The switch in the mindset from the law of Moses matters for every part of life to the law of Moses was fulfilled by Jesus and now we have a different way, different standards, different entry points into the community didn't happen immediately. There was a lot of residual power in the way they had always done everything before. Paul knows this. He's reasonable and practical. It took a council in Jerusalem to settle some of these questions. And Paul wants to be able to work with anybody from anywhere without any sort of barrier. So, so here's what Paul says. Or here's what Luke tells us Paul did, rather. Verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they knew his father was a Greek. Paul took Timothy and circumcised him. Now, I don't, if you were here last week for our walk through Acts chapter 15, I hope there are alarm bells going off in your head right now. I hope there's one of those blaring, uh, re repetitive alarm sounds. I hope neon flashing signs are, are appearing before your view. This, this seems completely out of character given what we just saw happen in Acts chapter 15. Paul was the one who went toe-to-toe -to -toe with people who said you had to be circumcised to be with Jesus. Those teachers came into Antioch where Paul was a minister, and he, he ran them out of town and ran down to Jerusalem with Barnabas and others to make sure that we got a, a comprehensive decision from the, the powers that be that could be taken to every place that Jesus has been named so that everyone will know that's not necessary anymore. That was Paul's leadership in the life of the church. And now here... It, just as he's taking to the road with the letter from the Jerusalem leaders to be read in all of these churches saying you don't have to be circumcised, he's taking Timothy and circumcising him. 
Why? Friends, it isn't because Paul is just some sort of two-faced, flip-flopping politician of some sort. Rather, Paul has Timothy circumcised here for the same reason that he went toe-to-toe with people who said that Timothy would have to be circumcised. Because he believes that the gospel of forgiveness through Jesus Christ is the one and only thing somebody needs and cannot do without. Let me unpack this. Paul is not willing to tolerate anything that might compromise that message by adding to it. You need Jesus and only Jesus to have peace with God and forgiveness for sin. That's what he fought for at the Jerusalem Council. That's why he wouldn't tolerate anyone teaching that the circumcision was necessary. That's what the letter is about that he's got in his hand that he's taking to this church right here where Timothy is a member. But but precisely because he knows Jesus is the only thing anyone needs, he's also not willing to hold on to anything that might be a barrier to somebody hearing that news and growing in it. There's nothing he won't set aside, nothing that he won't set aside in order to make sure everyone has access to this news without any kind of barrier. Later on, he's going to write a letter to churches. He may have already written it. We're not exactly sure when, but... He writes this letter to churches in Galatia near where Timothy is from, telling them circumcision is not something you need. He says in chapter 5 of that letter, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. All that matters is faith working through love. You need to have faith in what Jesus has done and you need to love your brother and your sister in Jesus' name. That's it. But here he's applying that same principle to the decision to have Timothy circumcised. Look, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Jesus matters. So if, if, if me not being circumcised is going to keep you from hearing about Jesus, I'll be circumcised. Who cares? It doesn't count for anything. Can you see how the logic works? God is going to get this gospel to these Jewish believers and to those who have not yet converted. God is going to strengthen their churches, we're told in verse 5, in part because men like Timothy were willing to make radical sacrifices, setting aside what was theirs by right so that they could reach anyone with the gospel of Jesus. This is how Paul put it in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, Paul says, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you see what he's saying? Precisely because this doesn't matter, I'll do it. If if Jesus, if Jesus becomes more accessible to you. So friends, I think we should consider from this story that, that God intends to work among us through our radical deference to one another. God intends to strengthen our church and others through us by our decision to set aside our rights gladly so we can focus together on the main thing that we can't do without. Let's hold loosely to whatever customs or traditions or preferences we may have that don't involve the gospel, that just don't have anything to do with Jesus. Let's let's look for ways that we can set those things aside if it means other people get more clear access to him. God works 
When like Christ, we set aside our rights or preferences for each other. Let's do that together as Paul and Timothy did here and expect him to work through us. A third way we see God at work in these stories comes in verse 6. We see here, thirdly, that God works through disrupted plans. We've seen that God works uh, through heartbreaking disagreement that no one wanted and no one saw coming. We've seen that God can work through radical sacrifice that none of us would want to choose for ourselves, but that Timothy gladly does so that the gospel gets forward. Verse 6 takes us into another little unique story that shows us God works through disrupted plans. Let me show you what I mean. Paul had planned to go from here into Asia. Verse 6 says he was forbidden from going by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says he then plans to go into Bithynia, up north near the Black Sea coast. He wants to go up there, but verse 7 says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. They go by a place called Mysia, over to Troas instead. And then when they're in Troas, having had one after another itinerary blown up for them, Paul gets this vision with some positive direction for once. Instead of where not to go, he has a dream of a man in the night pleading with him from Macedonia, come over and help us, verse 9. Luke tells us that now, including himself in this story, when Paul saw the vision, they sought to go to Macedonia. They, they concluded together that, that God had called them to go preach the gospel over there. They head west. Now, as a package here in this story, I, I don't know about you, but this is one of the stories where I would love some more details, how this went down. I, I would love to know how exactly God spoke to him. What did it mean that the Holy Spirit forbid him from going somewhere? Was that, was that through a still small voice? Was it through some sort of inner prompting? Was it one of the prophets that were active at that time? Did they speak a word from the Spirit to Paul so he knew what to do? I, we don't know. But there are at least three things that we do know from this little story that are helpful for us. First, God led Paul in these ways. However it happened... God directly led him, and he could do the same for us today. God spoke to Paul and to his team so they knew where to go, and God could lead us in this way today if he wanted to. The, the Bible gives us all sorts of examples of God speaking to his people through lots of random ways that none of us should ever expect. He, he talks about, or, or the, rather the Bible shows us God talking through an audible voice on some occasions. Sometimes he uses messengers or angels. There are some examples where he speaks through dreams. You'll find God writing a message in stone on one occasion and writing a message on a wall on another occasion. You'll find him speaking out of a burning bush in one place and out of the mouth of a donkey in another place. God can speak to his people however, wherever he wants to. And it's very much in bounds to imagine him speaking to Paul through a prophet or an inner message or a dream of some sort so he knows where to go. God could do the same for me and you if he chose to. Second thing we should note from this story, though, is that Paul didn't expect God to speak to him like this, and neither should we. Paul didn't expect God to speak to him like this. This was exceptional even for him. I mean, just think about the fact that he left John Mark and Barnabas headed off in a different direction. If Paul expected God to speak to him in these dramatic ways, don't you think he would have looked to God for that kind of dramatic vision 
during the midst of this disagreement with Barnabas? Wouldn't it have been easier to know what God wanted in that situation? Do we take John Mark or do we not? A vision in the night would be great. It didn't come. Paul had to do what he thought was wise. He had to make a careful decision on his own. And in most of his decisions, on most of his journeys through Acts, that's what we see him doing. We see him doing what seems best to him. And and when God does speak to him here, it's not because he asked for it, at least not from what Luke tells us. It's because God decided to do it. God intervenes in the night while Paul is sleeping. So I think it would be unwise for us to seek out this sort of revelation. Nowhere does God promise to speak to us like this. And if we wait around before we'll act on some sort of like from on high, undeniable, clear message from God for our situation, if we just wait around on that before we'll act, we'll never do anything. It's also presumptuous of us, friends, to expect him to. Because it assumes that God hasn't already spoken clearly to us. That he hasn't given us really what we need most through his word, backed by his spirit, in amongst his people. We have what we need, what, what he's wanted us to have in order to be able to make good decisions. And we ought, to, we ought to bank on that and make the decisions using the resources that he's given to us. I want to put in a plug right here for one of our adult Sunday school classes that's happening every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. It's precisely on these, these themes. How do you figure out what God's will is, especially if no one shows up from Macedonia in the night? then what, what do you do to know what, what will please God in a given situation? That's what the whole class is about, and I know they'd love to have you if you haven't checked it out yet. Here's the final thing we get from this story. The most important thing to know about this story, a reminder that me and you need every single day, is that God loves to work through disrupted plans. As a Christian, you don't need a vision from the Spirit to trust that diversions come from God. And when things don't go the way you thought they would, when precious plans you labored over, were careful over, precious plans that you laid down because you love the people that are impacted by them and you take your life seriously, when those precious plans fall apart, God did that. He loves you. And he loves to work in ways that will confound what you expected. And when God diverts our plans, you can assume that that diversion is not just for your good, but it's for his mission in the world through you. It's through disrupted plans like these that God often moves his soldiers around as the master general who knows the whole battlefield, who knows where everybody is needed in a way they couldn't possibly know from the front lines. It is God who picks up his soldiers and puts them where he wants them because he knows what's best. Friends, if you're facing right now a hard right turn you didn't ask for, a disrupted plan that was once precious to you, and you're still trying to pick up the pieces. If you're living with that disappointment, that disillusionment, maybe that disorientation right now, if you're tempted to complain or to try to force the plan or to come back better than ever, let me encourage you instead to ask the Lord to show you what opportunity he's just opened up to you, what platform he's just given you to share his word with others. And see what he shows you. 
chapter 16 rounds out with two conversion stories. One conversion story of a woman and one of a man, one of a God-fearing convert to Judaism who converts to Christianity, the other a dutiful servant of Rome, one apparently a kind of analytical thinker, the other apparently more of an instinctive doer. Luke in chapter 16 smashes these two stories together for our good, I think, to show us the very, very different ways that God can work to get the one and only gospel of peace to the vastly different people who need it. This is where I want us to finish our time together. Two more ways we see God working in this collection of stories, both of them conversion stories, radically different people and circumstances involved. The first is a woman named Lydia. We find her in verse 11 of chapter 16. They sail from Troas, heading by, by this island of Samothrace up to Neapolis where they were able to land and then from there to Philippi, which was the leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. That's what Luke tells us in verses 11 and 12. They stay here for a while and as was their custom, when the Sabbath day came, they go looking for Jewish worshipers of God. This is always the place that they start. Apparently in Philippi, there was no synagogue. They didn't have enough to, to make a quorum. So they look for a place they expect to be a place of prayer. And there they find a collection of women who were worshipers of God, seeking after God through the laws of Moses and the rituals that it prescribes, including a woman named Lydia. Lydia was, we're told, uh, from somewhere else who'd relocated to Philippi presumably because of her business. She came from a place famous for its dyes. She's a merchant of purple goods selling in this prosperous colony called Philippi. So what you should know about these, these purple goods is that they were luxury items. Nobody needed purple clothes. I mean, you could do just fine with some brown canvas or burlap or whatever. Purple was a status symbol. That's why you wore purple. It was a way of projecting on the outside, I'm important. And as a seller of these goods, Lydia presumably was herself wealthy. You don't get this kind of stock for free. You have to have it before you can sell it. She's doing just fine. So this is a woman whose, whose whole work life is focused on impressive appearances, who's been drawn into a system of laws and rituals that are very external, that are about projecting how, how you are with God based on how you behave before others. That correlation makes sense to me. But, but Luke is telling us here that there's something missing in her heart. Just like the, the purple garments that she sold to others, it seems like her religion was focused on the outside. Again, on these practices that, that people can see easily. And just as her, her life's work involved buying and selling, just one transaction after another... It seems that perhaps her religious life, apart from Jesus, had that kind of feeling towards God, transactional. I offer to you the practices and sacrifices that I'm supposed to offer. You give to me the blessing that I want to see in my life. It's exchange. It's tit for tat. We're told that, that Paul and the others sat down with the women, including Lydia, and spoke to them. We don't have to wonder what he said. Chapter 13 has given us an insight into what he said when he got to these synagogues. He started to open up the Hebrew Bible to them. He'd go story by story and law by law through that whole history to show that it's building relentlessly step by step by step all the way to Jesus. That, that all of it, everything they were looking to was fulfilled in him. 
that it's through this son who fulfilled the law, through this son who crushed the ultimate enemy, through through this son who was the perfect spotless sacrifice for sin, that, that God was doing everything that had to be done to forgive anyone from anywhere. That was his message in chapter 13. You can imagine that's his message here for Lydia. He's showing her Jesus as the master key to everything she's heard about what God wants and what God requires. He's showing her, in other words, that God didn't ask her to come and barter in some sort of merchant exchange, not with a polished and purple-clad exterior. But God expects her to come empty-handed and naked, coming to Him for the only righteousness that saves And that if she comes on those terms, if she believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, God will forgive her too, once and for all. And Luke tells us that as Paul was speaking, this is verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. What she had understood through her mind became beautiful to her heart. Lydia had an experience on the inside of what she was hearing from the outside. As one pastor put it, God had been useful to her. Now God is beautiful to her. She no longer seeks from God, but but seeks God. If this is the message she connected with, if this is what her heart was open to receive, she now sees God differently than she ever could have before. Now, friends, God must do this work. That's clear. No sermon has ever been persuasive or creative or well-illustrated enough to open somebody's heart like this. God has to do do it. And, And verse 14 says he did. But we have to notice, what we need to see here is what God chose to work through because he works like this today. The fourth thing you need to see about how God works is that God works through gospel reasoning. God works when one person takes the scriptures and explains them to someone else as all about Jesus from beginning to end. And we must expect God not just to work through this, work through us in the same way, but but to also prepare to be used like this, like Paul did. One of the main applications you can take from this would be to, to see it as your responsibility, as part of your mission in life, to understand the Bible with Jesus at the center of all of it, to do the kind of work it takes to understand the Bible this way so that you can then hand it on to someone else. It won't happen effortlessly. You've got to dig in. You've got to read. You've got to pay attention. You've got to listen. You've got to talk it out. You have to practice. But the work is worth it because, look, God uses this. He takes your understanding and with that pass to someone else's understanding, awakens hearts. You can be part of that work too. It'd be a great reason to go to the How to Study the Bible Sunday School class that's happening right now, 9 a.m. before worship every single Sunday. Part of the focus of that class is going to be on seeing the whole Bible fitting together through Jesus, just like Paul showed to Lydia. We'd love to have you part of that class to see it for yourself. For now, though, I'm going to leave you with one last takeaway from this collection of short stories. One last way that we see God working The final conversion story in this chapter shows us that God works through unbelievable grace. God works through unbelievable grace. 
This story shows us God saving somebody vastly different from Lydia, using the same message about Jesus, but a wildly different delivery package. This is a story about the local jailer in Philippi, a man whose name we don't know, a man whose occupation we know, presumably because his occupation was who he was before he met Jesus. I wish we had the time to go through the setup for this story, to walk you through how Paul and Silas and the others get arrested to begin with through this encounter with a slave woman possessed by a demon who who, they deliver from the exploitation, not just by the demon, but by the powers that be who were using her for profit. We don't have time to go into the setup. I want to take you straight to the prison. When Paul and Silas took away this livelihood from someone who had had used this slave girl as as their way to make a buck, things get ugly in a hurry. You challenge the idols of a, of a culture, you're going you're gonna to get some blowback. That's what they get. The crowd rises up against them for what they've done, and they beat them mercilessly and then throw them into prison, charging the jailer to hold them there. And he takes them as he finds them, bruised and broken, bleeding, no telling what sort of pain. And rather than treating them, rather than binding up their wounds, he chains them to the stocks, we're told. Verse 24, he adds to their pain with a brutal and inhumane condition that he puts onto them. So they can't even move around for relief. They just have to sit there and feel it all. And the way he treats them was typical for somebody whose only focus is the duty that's given to his office. This is a guy who knows his role. That's how he knows who he is and where he fits in the world. And he's fully comfortable with it, apparently. Then, verse 25 tells us, About midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners are listening to them. Surely they're listening to them thinking, what in the world is this? We see the wounds. We see the pain these guys are going through. We see the mistreatment they've received. But now we hear them singing as if they're joyful, as if they've got some reason to be happy as they talk to their God. Why are they not angry at him? Why are they not pleading with him for help? Why are they worshiping him when this is where he's put them? Surely they're listening wondering what in the world is going on. And that, it's at that moment that everything changes. We're told that an earthquake occurs, shakes the prison to its foundation. And not just any earthquake, clearly this was a quake with a purpose. Every door flies open. Every prisoner's chains fall off. This is a supernatural intervention of God. Now imagine what it felt like to wake up as that jailer. I mean, making up to an earthquake has got to be disorienting no matter what. I mean, under any circumstances, that's a rough way to come out of a deep sleep. But, but this man woke up to see every door of his prison standing wide open. This is a man who has one job. I mean, he's like a place kicker in football. You just don't miss the kick. That's your only thing to do, okay? No one's even going to tackle you. Just, just kick the ball through the uprights. This guy didn't have to capture them. He just has to, to keep them there behind locked iron bars. And he fails. And when he sees what's happened, his immediate reaction is suicide. That's not random. That's the custom in the Roman world at this time. If you fail like this, if you lose this kind of face, the honorable response is to take your own life. When you live for duty and your life is defined by your role in that system, you got nothing to live for when you fail. But it's just here when this man has reached the end of himself when the duty that he lived for offered him nothing but death, no way of redemption, 
that God's grace intervened through the very people he'd wronged so badly the night before. Just as he's about to fall on his sword, Paul screams out to him, do not harm yourself, we're all here. These prisoners could have fled. They had no chains, the doors are wide open, they chose to stay. And from the way Luke tells this story, it's clear they chose to stay for him. The man falls down before them. He's asking them, what must I do to be saved? They're giving him the only answer that's ever saved anyone. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he does. But, but do you see what the Lord used to open this man's heart? Before it was ever the words that they spoke, the things that, 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 that this man heard, it was the grace that they showed him. It's what they saw that melted his heart and broke down his resistance. They came to him bleeding and in pain and he gave them the stocks. It's only after his conversion that he cleans and binds their wounds. And when someone has mistreated you like this, what, what makes sense in that situation is vengeance. Now's our chance to get out of here. I can't wait to see what this guy gets when they find out we're not here. That's what makes sense. That's what his system of belief had taught him to expect from them. But these men, these men, they, they gladly give up their freedom for the sake of this man who mistreated them. They, this jailer was more important to them than their freedom. This prison was nothing to them but a platform for sharing the gospel. This prison set them up for their reason for living. And they're fine with it. Nothing had prepared this man to experience God's grace through them. And friends, the book of Acts, this chapter full of stories, it's given to us so that we're ready for God to work through us as he chose to work through them, even when that means extending to one another costly and even unbelievable grace. These men aren't looking to protect themselves or their rights. They are all too happy to stay in prison when it meant a chance to reach this man because Christ is more precious to them than their lives. And these are men who are confident about where all of this is going. The God who could open these doors for them could always free them later if he wanted to. They don't have to stress about this opportunity and whether it'll pass them by. And this God never promised them freedom anyway. He promised them a chance to preach. That's what they're looking for. That's what they find. And friends, that's our calling too. Have you considered that sometimes when it hurts you the most to forgive someone, God is giving you at that moment your most impactful opportunity to recommend Jesus to them? Do you have a purpose for your life more important than that Let's pray to the Lord that he will give us the perspective and the power that he gave to these men for the work that he intends to do through us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking. We thank you for the beauty of these stories and the power of the grace that comes to us through them. And now we ask that you would make us conduits for this same grace to one another. We pray that you would carry on your work through us and give us the grace and confidence to trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.